Hello and welcome to another episode of Wither the Luniversity, the podcast on the miserable state of higher education. Um, it is a podcast of my publication, The Peerless Review, and I'm excited about my guest today. Uh, Adam Gusso is with me. He is professor of English and Southern Studies at Ole Miss, uh, University of Mississippi. He is also half of the blues duo Satan and Adam, who were the subject of a recent Netflix documentary. And he's the author of many books, um, most recently, Who's Blues? Facing Up to Race and the Future of Music. He's also published scholarly work in American literature, the African-American Review, Pop Music and Society, and many other uh, journals and publications. Adam, welcome. I'm really happy to have you here. Thanks, Adam. I'm just delighted to be here. And as I mentioned to you, I've listened to seven out of your 10 podcasts, and I want to catch up on the ones I haven't yet gotten to. So I'm really honored to be here. Fantastic. Well, one of the reasons I wanted to have you here is uh, that you um, strike me as a guy who who has some uh, sympathetic feelings towards some of the grievances that sort of the woke campus apparatus are trying to address. But you also seem to be um, a, a guy who's pragmatic enough to understand some of the limitations and the problems um, in sort of the DEI agenda. So I hope that we get into that a little bit today. Mm -hmm. um, but before we start in on that, I ask everybody about their training. Um, you've had a, a very uh, rich life of um, playing blues, blues music, um, doing things with the university. You're also a native New Yorker. Mm -hmm um who studies southern studies so tell us about you know how you got here what your career trajectory was yeah how did a manhattan guy end up in mississippi i mean i was born in in new york but i grew up in a, a town called congress a sort of uh, white working class town basically downstate new york about 20 miles north of the city um and, and as the son of sort of two artist intellectuals my father was uh, somebody who introduced bobby kennedy in 65 when he was thinking about running for senate um, introduced him to sort of the Hudson River, which needed cleaning up. So environmentalism uh, is a value I still believe in because I know the Hudson River got cleaned up. Um, my mother was a is a progressive, still alive at 94, um, a progressive kind of early foodie. She was critiquing the food, um, sort of the food business, if you will, the food production business, the agribusness early, 75. And, and so I um, my father was a delegate for McGovern. That should tell you all you need to know. I mean, we didn't win the state. Mm -hmm. um, so I grew up in a kind of left liberal family, just understanding intuitively that, that, that you know, nobody that we knew voted Republican. And I still haven't ever voted Republican. I, I, to be honest, I worked for a, a liberal Republican once, Charlie Goodell, when he ran. Um, I went to graduate school, I was an undergrad at, at, at Princeton and very much uh, sort of becoming a musician at the same time. And I had no pr particular cultural politics. If I have one memory, it's that when students had to did the circled Nassau Hall in 1978, Princeton out of South Africa, I was a guy who watched from the sidelines. I tended to be the, the, the watch, look, listen, kind of not skeptic about politics, but, but a, a step to the, to the center of my parents, if you might say. I mean, I always a little skeptical. Um, and then I ended up in, in New York, uh, li lived with a, a, an ardent academic feminist who I was madly in love with. And in the fall of, uh, in the fall of uh, 1982, I went to Columbia uh, and did very well for a couple of years, um, you know, courses with Edward Said and others. Mm. But I was very much an anti-deconstructionist. What I fancied myself at that point 
was a sort of Edmund Wilson, Malcolm Cowley. Cowley was a hero of mine, a kind of clear thinking, anti-theoretical. I didn't like theoretical discourse um, and, and sort of anti-deconstruction. I wanted to be a, an independent sort of literary journalist. And I had a cover story in the Boston Review in 84 that was kind of anti-neoconservative. It was like a look at the neoconservatives you know, a, a liberal who's been mugged by reality. I was, I was, I had not yet been mugged by reality at all. But I also thought they were mistaken about the, the, the threat. They were minimizing the threat of sort of nuclear Armageddon. And of course, we had Reagan at that point who was talking about Armageddon might be around the corner. And so I was, many people forget the single largest protest uh, in American history was June of 1982. And I was there, it was the anti-nuclear. It's a million people in Central Park. So to that extent, you know, I flirted with those sorts of when when leftist politics go mass, that sort of made sense to me. Um, and then I had a I, I dropped out of grad school. The relationship with the feminist ended. That made me at least one increment more cynical about things like that. And I became a musician. I mean, I was a musician, but I I reactivated and was a busker in New York and Paris in the fall of 86, I began playing with a guitar player in Harlem. This is the sort of foundational story of the Satan and Adam thing. And for three or four years during a really time of really high racial tension in New York um, with, you know, uh, uh, Howard Beach and Bensonhurst, Yousef Hawkins being shot in Bensonhurst, Crown Heights, that whole period, I was a street musician, a, a white guy in Harlem, playing harmonica with this genius and had very little hassle. One, one thing that many people assume is like, first of all, they assumed it must've been dangerous and it didn't feel dangerous. There was just one bad day when somebody put me on the spot, six weeks after Do the Right Thing came out. It was a week after Do the Right Thing came out, two weeks after Do the Right Thing came out. Um, but for the most part, what it was, was an experience in just um, submerging, sort of actually forgetting about my whiteness in a funny way in an all black environment and just making music and really getting inside the music. Um, I did not think about going back to grad school for a while. I mean, I was out, but, but then at some point, the musical career, which became a touring career, you know, I, I had been reading a whole lot of African-American literature trying to make sense of my experience in Harlem. And at a certain point, I think I read Bell Hooks, an essay called Eating the Other, which, was, which attributed horrible bad faith to any white person who had anything to do with black culture in some way. And it was all just consuming. You want to just consume us. It's cannibalizing. And I remember reading Greg Tate's essay, Everything But the Burden at some point, what, whites, what white people take from black culture. And I thought, I had thought about going back to grad school, not to be a blue scholar, but because I had been involved in what I thought of as a musical version of beloved community. And that phrase, Ira Zepp, and there was another uh, scholar who wrote about King. I, I, when I came across that phrase, it really moved me beloved community, the true interrelatedness, because one thing that I felt playing music was that despite the talent level differential, I mean, I was playing with a genius and I'm not a musical genius. I'm just a guy who learned quick and tried really hard and played hard. But I was conscious that, that music is a place where that could be worked out. I mean, I was, we were family to each other. We were touring America. We were traveling on the road. And I think that that experience of what I'd call transracial creativity, if I may, I mean, the word transracial these days could get you in trouble, probably. Back then, it felt real to me. And so I, I, I went back to grad school, I applied, got, I actually decided not to restart Columbia, but go back to Princeton. 
uh, as a grad student this time and 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 was there and, and then had a transformation that I didn't expect. So I wanted to go and sort of explore transracial creativity. And then in the fall of that first year in 94, well, of course, the O.J. Simpson thing had just happened. So America was sort of splintering at, before me. And then the that next fall in 95, the O.J. OJ was found, you know, not guilty. Um, and I was in Nell Painter's um, uh, African-American uh, intellectual history class when that happened and thinking, what a, what a difficult time. That was when I began to write the memoir that basically was about the, the relationship. But what happened to me basically was that I began to think about blues and violence. Um, I, I, I was one of those white people whose experience of blues, as real and rigid as, as it had been, it had never taken me into a deep South confrontation with a long history. This is where you say, to the extent that I'm sympathetic to something that woke, the wokes might be sympathetic to, it's that, yeah, for a long time, I've been paying attention to horrific racial violence in the South. Um, I mean, I went to the original Without Sanctuary exhibition when it was just in a little, before it got to the New York Historical Society. I was one of the least scandalized people because <laughs> There, because I've been studying these narratives. There weren't a lot of scholars doing it, but there were some, a handful, Philip Dre and Trudy or Harris were writing about this, but not in connection with blues. And that got me to, that became basically my dissertation, my first book. And I'm going on at length, but let me, let me just say sort of where this goes, which is that people, people I thought of myself as an African-American lit guy when I went on the job market and in fact got a job at Vassar as a visiting assistant professor in, for, for that lasted for two years before I got the Ole Miss job. Um, it was English and Africana studies. And I had a project that made me that kind of Garrett Felber golden boy among black intellectuals. There were Houston A. Baker blurbed. Um, I mean, I, I'll tell you a, a story. I actually put on a, the way I got the blurb on that book was that in, 89, in 99, I decided that I would, it was sort of careerist, but also what I was interested in. It was the 15th anniversary of blues ideology and Afro-American literature by him, by Houston A. Baker Jr., who subsequently, of course, becomes a terrible problem during the Duke rape lacrosse thing. Uh, but that was all in the future. And I invited him. I said, would you come and chair this thing? I know he was a past president of the MLA. And I said, would you be a commentator? I'm going to put together a, a great blues panel. And so I did that with... Um, Arthur Flowers and um, Paul Guerin, who's a scholar and, and a number of others. And he came and he chaired it. And I actually did, I, I actually did a sort of critical appreciation of his book. And I said, interestingly enough, the one thing he leaves out is the violence. Little did I know that he would take that idea, which I had, he basically agreed in that book that he leaves out racial violence. And then he came right back within a couple of years, he had a, a, a special issue of American literature um, that was all about uh, turning and then turning south again. It was all about basically we need to pay attention to this stuff. And, and so it resonated. My point basically is that I was, that's sort of where I was, but I was always willing to be skeptical. And one chapter in my book, there were se several that were sort of problematic. I mean, the chapter on Hurston was about why Zorniel Hurston felt it was important to depict herself being chased at knife point by a black woman <laughs> in two different texts out of the juke joints that she'd been investigating. Why was that important to her? And so I, I write about that in Who's Blues. It was, and, and the sort of guns and knives element of blues violence was something that I, I explored very frankly. I said, look, it was an occupational hazard. I, I, I had, 
as a blues musician, I'm always thinking about it from the perspective of the blues guys, blues women too, but blues guys who are in those clubs. And violence was an ever-present threat if you were a Southern blues musician. People just, everybody was armed. It was, the white law wasn't going to take care of a beef that you might have with some other black person, right? So you had, it was hands-on in a true transracial Southern way. Um, anyway, it's a long answer to a, to a question, but that's sort of in a nutshell. So well, I'll one try of to the go. things forward. that I read about of yours was a description yeah. of uh, an episode that happened at a uh, training, an anti-racism training session. And I, I wanted to have sure. you recount that experience. And mm-hmm. um, then I probably will have some questions for you about it, depending on what you say. Absolutely. So, and I ended up writing a piece about this over the last couple of years that several of my friends said, you shouldn't, good friends said, you shouldn't publish this. And I'm, I'm, I have zero regrets that I published it. So I had that first book, Seems Like Murder Here, Southern Violence and, and the Blues Tradition. And I wanted to go in a different direction. And one thing that I became conscious of in the late 90s was this discourse, it was they were moving towards the Czech more than one box thing. They were moving towards your black, not just black or white, but black and white, or you know, other things. That 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 multiple that the destigmatization of of multiracial and biracial identity was a part of, of Clinton's era and what followed. I wanted to do a book, and I it was sort of on modalities of racial healing. That remember that phrase, racial healing, kind of a quote, a, a quaint phrase that I don't think anybody really uses these days. We are so, that's so, you know, early 2000s, right? But it was big then. And I had like eight chapters mapped out and one of them, I mean, so there were site-specific commemorations, you know, where you go to a place where there was a lynching in Moore's, Moore's Ford, Georgia or something. And, and then you white, whites and blacks get together and hold hands and say a prayer. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to trivialize. It was just, there were many different ways. Um, in Christian, there was Christian yoke fellows where black and white Christians get together and do things. But there was one mode that, that, that I sort of didn't really like, that I thought I needed to pay attention to, which was, let, instead of dissolving race, instead of taking the field sister seriously and sort of let's get beyond race, because if you, you know, where race is, it, it's produced by racism. That, that's why we need races with hardened edges. They were, it, they were people who held workshops, usually with the word whites or whiteness somewhere in there or allies somewhere in there. And they were workshops where um, people heightened their whiteness. It was sort of, it came out of whiteness studies. And so the classic thing would be you walk in the room and somebody says, hello, white people. And it's all, it's a room full of, I guess we're all white people. We, we have sort of assumed that, even though of course there were a lot of people who might theoretically be passing and not even knowing it, but white people. I went to one, I'm not gonna say where it was, when I fictionalized it, um, by the way, I need to pause and just tell my son, Sean, um, he's just coming home. You're going to need to go in your room because I'm on Zoom. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, I contacted the organizers and it was, uh, I'll just say that I fictionalized it as being in the West Coast. It was, it was somewhere else, but I'm not going to talk about it or give the title, except that I called it uh, white, what did I call it? White anti-racist allies in training, my social justice uh, uh, troubles and yours. Playing a play on Norman Pedoritz's article. Um, and so I decided I would go, I, I, I flew to the, the place where it was, and they knew, they understood what I was going to be there to do. It was, and they, they explained to people, this guy is, I've been to some Omega Institute encounter group type things, the heart opening workshop. So I was like, I'll do the work, but I'm also an academic investigator, but I'm here, I'm participating in good faith fully. 
That was the understanding. And I'm not bringing a recorder into the, I'm not recording it. I'll take notes and people understand that that's what I'm doing. I just want to get a sense of how it worked. And on the first day, they introduced us, they, they did a bunch of things. And there was a workbook. One thing that unnerved me about the workbook was that it actually got several key things, key elements of black history wrong, like wildly off on slavery numbers. And, and, and they spelled, it was like they spelled Du Bois wrong or something. It was that level of yikes. <laughs> um, okay. There were three people I, I've come to understand were sort of um, on the spectrum, sort of, uh, um, I guess the non-binary people. I wouldn't have had that term then. Nobody had that term then. But I just said, well, they sort of they're sort of boyish, but I think they're female. I don't know who they are, right? But they're just part of the thing. There weren't that many men. We're all white, obviously. There were two organizers. There weren't that many men. Um, and, and there were a number of gay women. So we, as we sort of, the self-identifications, you sort of get a sense, and I'm the oldest guy, and I'm the oldest white guy, and uh, the word Princeton is associated with me and other things. Then we were given an intersectional grid, primitive intersectional grid, and with, you know, the power thing. And I just, that's the moment where I thought, okay, well, you're the, <laughs> you're the old white guy with the word Princeton somewhere in there, that's your education, and and you're sort of low man on the totem pole in intersectional term problem. And I thought about Du Bois. You're the high man on the totem pole. You're the, well, right. <laughs> How does it feel to be a problem? Which, of course, is Du Bois' foundational sentence. And I'm, you know, I'm African-American scholar, studies scholar. And, and, and it was sort of, okay. And then I ended up telling a story. And the story, we were sort of a share kind of thing. At some point, I think sort of the middle of the first, it was, there was a Friday night, so in the middle of the big long Saturday, right? Kind of late morning or early afternoon. I think it was late morning. And I told a story and it, ha it happened to involve the fact that, that while my African-American colleague was on maternity leave, I had been given the second half of the, the African-American Lit Survey and what it was like to teach that. And I, I described an encounter where um, one of the girls, one of the young, younger black women in class was telling me about Hey, you know, do you believe this bullshit? There's actually a place in Mississippi near where I live in Winona, which is where Fannie Lou Hamer was beat down. In Winona, that's like still white folks only. Isn't that ridiculous? And I was like, it is. And she and 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 I said, why don't you come in tomorrow? Let's. She said we should go in there and you know march on it. And I was like, oh, that's kind of an interesting idea. So I said, come in tomorrow. You know, I'll give you the the floor and tell us what you're envisioning. Now, to me, this is like. You're giving up power. Shouldn't you be doing that and making a space for a voice? All those things, the lefty kind of lefty things that I actually thought were great, fine. And I told the story, I told how she'd come in, she made way for her. When I'd finished telling a story, when we never, what happened is we ended up having a wonderful conversation in that class. Felt like something important had happened. The blacks and the whites together felt, felt kind of unified. Like we're totally off the intersectional grid. And not long after that, I, I told that story, basically everybody got upset. They got so upset that the two organizers said, we're gonna do a little something here. We're gonna improvise a little something. Um, Adam, you're gonna sit and you're not gonna say a word. You can have one ally. You can, I don't know whether she was picked for me or I picked her. And we're gonna go around the circle as people see fit and everybody's gonna have a chance. And I'm caricaturing only something to tell, to tell you why you pissed them off and why they're hurt by what you said. And you can't say a thing. And it began to go around the room. Now I'd, I'd had, there was one interesting thing, which is I realized from earlier conversations 
that not only not only were had, did people here actually not know many black people, um, and of course I'd had this long experience, but it, it just but that they weren't necessarily here to achieve social justice vis-a-vis black people. This was the single most startling, disturbing thing. They were there, the the non-binary people were there partly because they were unhappy with how the world was treating them. And they saw in black people a kind of proletariat that I think could substitute. I'm just, I'm I'm analyzing maybe a little overanalyzing, but that was part of what was going on. And it bothered me. It was like, this should be about us healing ourselves as a cohort creating bond, you know, getting deep into the work, but also bonding as a cohort, but and creating a different kind of whiteness, if you will, it doesn't have to be an anti racist whiteness exactly it has to but it has to be a more awakened whiteness. And we should pool our experience I wasn't trying to hold court, if you will, I wasn't trying to, what's the word pull rank. But clearly they felt that I was trying to pull rank and so at a certain point I realized that the anger that was being directed at me had nothing ultimately in any rational way to do with what I'd actually said. It was, a, it was an anger that wasn't about me. It was to some extent maybe about that intersectional identity, the guy they imagined, maybe they imagined that this guy would be somebody other than he was. But it got so evil, and that's the word I, I felt ultimately had to use, that the two organizers began to look aghast and they yanked it to a halt. And it was clear they felt they'd made a mistake. They said later they'd made a mistake. They'd underestimated I didn't have the term struggle session. I didn't know about the speak bitterness stuff that the Chinese Communist Party, and I don't know whether they did either. That wasn't something I could ask them about. We had a, a long um, phone meeting, which I recorded the next day, and I didn't, I didn't have any basis for understanding what happened. I mean, that we recorded later in the week when I was back home. What I will say is that and, and in the, when I wrote this up, what happened was at a certain point, I got pissed off. <laughs> I got, and, and I'm going to encourage anybody who finds themselves in this sort of thing, who realizes there's something wrong here and it's not you. And I said, to him, I said, basically, I said, basically, wait a minute. I said, this is bullshit. If I was on the street in Harlem and I'd read black and white styles in conflict and I knew about how things work, that somebody yells in your face, you yell in their face. You're, and eventually everybody's had their say, but everybody is not. Nobody's been silenced. And I said, you're in a sense, I said, in Harlem, you couldn't do this to me. I said, this is the whitest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> and that broke the spell in a weird way. And I don't know whether that was what led them to yank it to a stop. Maybe that was. I think it might have been. Maybe. So that proceeded. They yanked it to a stop. And eventually I ended up talking with one of the people. But eventually it all kind of simmered down and we made peace and it was okay. But it was okay partly because I, I got fucking pissed off, if I can use my French. Well, let, um, me, let me pause you for just sure. a second here, because this sure. is this pushback. Push um, yeah. So like somebody with my politics would know better than to attend such a thing to begin with. <laughs> right. Um, that, right. That it right, seems right. to me you're right that these white people that you encountered there are not interested in doing the work, as it's called. But what they're interested in, from my perspective, is two things. They want to give each other a pat on the back right because they're so enlightened to be at an anti-racist thing and they're seeking mm-hmm. sort of vicariously to purchase some absolution right they're absolutely they're, they're sort of racked with white guilt and this is how some they of that signify yeah. to themselves that i'm one of the good ones um and and so like you know like 
I haven't been to, there's been many of them. Um, I haven't been to a department meeting on anti-racism stuff in, in a couple of years now because I just mm -hmm. flat out refuse. And, you know, mm -hmm. your story kind of makes me feel justified in this. Let, let me ask you this question. Sure. Why should people like me deal with these people in good faith rather than just uh, seeing the grift? Well, so understand that this was 2003. So part yes. of what I, my point here was that this is a distant early warning signal. This is, this is when it was still very much in a, it was a left-leaning academic enterprise, a left-leaning activist enterprise that sort of does these training sessions. So I went into the belly of the beast circa 2003. I think the, the signal thing here is that it's moved into government. It's moved into universities. My own university, I mean, we had, I was going to be on any search committee. I needed to have uh, I needed to do a certain training and it wasn't that bad but I have to be honest I, I you know I think many of us over this last three four five years but certainly since the summer of George Floyd summer of 2020 I think many of us have said what would be a bridge too far live not by lies you know the Barry Weiss is the Solzhenitsyn quote a lot of people are recycling it live not by lies like what it's one thing for me to be able to sit silently but what was is there something that could that I could be forced to take part in that would be the place where I I'm like the guy like the the airplane uh you know steward guy who jumps out the goes out the escape hatch on the side I mean that kind of moment where you go I'm gone right it, we shouldn't be like that but I think but I thought about that and I think that would be a, a, a Rubicon would be if I'm expected to take part in a session and it begins to go in that direction and it begins to, if I'm forced to say that, yes, I think that all white people are, you know, are, are, are in some way saddled with this guilt, this primal guilt um, from the beginning and if, entirely apart from the, how they've lived their lives to date, um, that would be, I mean, I'd leave the meeting, um, but I could imagine, I, again, I don't think it's going to happen. University of Mississippi, believe it or not, it's a little more benign. I, we're not Williams, right. you know, we're not some of these elite institutions where I think it, it, it's probably much tougher. We're not the Sandia Corporation, you know, those sorts of trainings have not come to Ole Miss. Um, but I, I, could you re-ask your question? I'm not sure if I fully addressed it. Why should I deal with these people in good faith and not just assume that A, they're they're actually interested in exacerbating racial grievance, right? Um, you know, I, mm -hmm. I think that, you know, that's to me the aim is these people do not want resolution. Once there's resolution, there's no more victims. And once there's no more victims, there's no more power. And what these people want is true. power. Um, that's true. That's true. Yeah, you have. I mean, one question I, I you can ask questions. And I, I do want to tell you a story about my own English department with the with the preface that I, I, I really get along well beautifully with my current chair, um, with my the head of the Center for the Study of Southern Culture, and partly because I've been honest with them about where I am. You know, they've, um, I'm not sure I'll sh share this link. I don't know, maybe I will. I haven't said anything too outrageous yet. Um, where was I gonna go? Where was I gonna go? Why should we, in good faith, I think, here's a reason. Well, one thing is we can to maintain sanity. In other words, I know it may sound counterintuitive, but I'm gonna I want to give you an example. I I, I looked this up. Um, in our in our English department at Ole Miss, we had a a meeting that was about a, it was a sort of draft statement that was called a statement of commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we were you know com, comment comments were asked comments were we they, we were asked for comments, 
Um, faculty of the English Department at the University of Mississippi embraces diversity, inclusion, and equity is central to the scholarly mission and humanistic values of this department. Um, our commitment to inclusion means that we strive to foster an open, self-reflective, and supportive. Okay, our commitment to equity. Here, actually, what bothered me right off the bat was this. Our commitment to diversity means that we work to ensure that our students, faculty, and staff represent an array of salient experiences that mark human difference. So why we're founded on difference. And that struck me as philosophically not something that I entirely liked. I wished it could be, so I suggested a, a, a rewrite, didn't go through. Um, including differences of race, ethnicity, religion, national origin, socioeconomic background, sexual orientation, gender expression, characteristics, and physical ability. What's missing? Well, obviously, viewpoint diversity is missing. Um, but so, so I, I came up with a, they just didn't, here's what I did. I said, well, I had an incredible meeting with a guy named Andrew Newby, who was the head of the veterans thing. And I thought, they've left veterans off. Do I have any justification for coming to the meeting and saying, can we find some way, well, veterans choose to be veterans, right? It's not, it, but they're incredibly diverse. And I had an amazing meeting. I went and met a guy I had not previously met, who's a, he has an English PhD from Auburn. Um, and he's a, he's, a, he's a vet. And I went, so here's what I did. I looked at the actual things university-wide for ethways, for, for equity, UM pathways to equity, underrepresented groups. Okay, um, and what I found on that group was adult learners, veterans. Okay, so underrepresented groups. I kept poking around in the document and I found the bias education and response team. So if there's a, a hate crime on campus, bias related incidents are defined as alleged threats or acts of harassment or intimidation, whether verbal, written or physical, which are motivated by a bias against a person or property in whole, blah, 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 blah. blah. Person's age, color, ability, marital status, national or ethnic origin, political affiliation, race, religion, sex, including pregnancy, socioeconomic status, okay, class is good, gender identity, gender expression, sexual orientation, veteran status, family, medical or genetic makeup or information, intellectual perspective, so <laughs> viewpoint diversity. So what I did is I said, look, I'm going to call, I, I, this is going to get me in trouble, I'm going to call their bluff. I believe in diversity. I believe we have a better conversation in the classroom. Not, you know, when we have not just a range of differences that way, but when we have vets who've actually been in battle, they've taught me some amazing things in classrooms. And believe it or not, vets are an incredibly heterogeneous group. Andrew Newby, I'd like to invite Andrew Newby to come in and talk to us about that. And viewpoint diversity, I think would be good. Here's how I leveraged it. I said, I've got a rewrite that I think, I got a rewrite that I think works, right? I'm going to read this and I want to read my, we recognize that the University of Mississippi is situated on the ancestral home of the Chickasaw Nation and that people enslaved to wealthy patrons, this is the universe, this is the Ole Miss statement, right? Wealthy patrons of the institution carried out the construction of the campus itself. We further acknowledge the deep history of racial strife at U the campus, which served in 1962 as a violent struggle for the integration of higher education in this state and a flashpoint in the struggle to desegregate U.S. American society more generally. And then I said, how about this? Just adding the sentence for this same reason, we salute the bravery of U.S. Air Force veteran James Meredith, acknowledging the transformative effect he had on this university. And we welcome military veterans as an historically underserved community that exemplifies diversity. I just no, put it. So why, no why should I? No, no dice. dice. Right? I mean, it, it, you've got a black man who changes the institution in absolutely anti-racist ways. And he's a vet. And they wouldn't take and No. 
and then so I realized, and I, again, I don't you know if this gets back. I, I love my, I love my chair. I get along great. Um, I, the diversity committee is fine, but it, to my mind, I called their bluff because they're not really serious about diversity. What they're serious about, and this is important, in the aftermath of the Garrett Felber case, some people may remember there was a guy on campus who was a, he was a hard left guy who was not sort of um, rehired because of a dispute with a, the chair of the history program. With somebody I know, and he's actually cool, and she helped with our chair search. She's a good person, Noel, Noel. Um, and I, in the aftermath of that, I think 3,000 anti-racist academics from around the country, around the world, signed a letter, signed a petition saying, we'll never set foot on your campus. And I think that panicked the administration. I think it panicked the, I think the English department felt that as stigma. Oh my God, in this woke moment, everybody's seeing us as the antichrist and nobody will come here. And so I think this is for grad students. I think this was designed solely for the purpose of assuring grad students we are a righteous department. I'll say that to the face of my chair and, and the diversity committee person. Again, I, they're, they're friends, I love them, but that's what this is about. It's about reassuring ourselves and, our, and potential graduate students in our righteousness, in our stainlessness, um, f no sin from us. And that's, that's, I have a problem with that. I don't think it's actually, I don't think it produces the best conversations from no. a pedagogical perspective. So that's, that's one thing. One thing that I, I ask myself constantly, and maybe have some thoughts about this, is that the American university is the most inclusive, equitable, accessible, anti-racist place in American life, you know? And at the same hard time- Hard to argue with that. Yes, it's hard to argue with that. At the same time, they are, utterly transfixed by their own inadequacies in in these realms that they're they're not equitable enough they're not inclusive enough right what's that about why do you think that is i mean i think i agree with you so why what those two things how do they coexist is it ideology that's undergirding all this is it yeah i mean that's, is that's it intersectional it is to me it's intersectionality a, going mad um it's part of know. it i think is the administrative bureaucratic elements of the university which have expanded dramatically their their presence on the american campus and they are the ones i i think people think it's the students who push this the most that's not my experience of it my experience of it is that it has institutional endorsement of kind of a woke corporatism that now worms its way into you know like i had a i had a committee mm. meeting this morning right with my department what did we spend the time talking about? What do the department's objectives need to be? Well, you know, apparently the top of the order of business for us is an anti-racism statement. Apparently that's really what the English department at University of Houston downtown really needs to get on. Okay. Um, <laughs> and, and my point is just like, yeah. you know, like, first of all, what is the function of explicating your anti-racism? Would any anti, would, would any, you know, I think it's presumed that we're anti-racist. And so I'm not sure why this needs to be stated. And yet you're reading the, your, the, the uh, document from your university. And it seems like, again, these things that you would assume, yes, of course we're inclusive. Of course we're diverse. Like, why does it need to be explicated? Well, here's the other thing that I thought is, you know, look, I, if, if I'm, a, I mean, I happen to be kind of a, we should talk about what I am, right? I'm sort of an Obama era liberal, I guess, a Kennedy liberal stuck in the, the progressive age. Um, 
but I, I'm a, I can read a statement like this from the standpoint of somebody who is center right, somebody who's thinking about coming to grad school, and I can know that they're reading this and going, oh, geez, right? Mm -hmm. So if, if, and at the same time, we're losing um, majors, right? Southern Studies is actually doing well, but English department and other humanities programs are losing majors. You think maybe it would help if we reached out and made clear that we are a big tent and we're open to, you know, we believe in genuine diversity in the classroom and open to a range. We might actually get a few more English majors coming in from the other side, right? So, but I think one thing that doesn't get talked about, is, and I think that's part of this spiral, I don't want to call it a death spiral, but it's a, um, you know, where we know that sort of the, the, that Trump coming in absolutely set a fire underneath progressives and just and I think a lot of people who who saw Obama as a kind of father figure, a kind of transracial father figure were horrified when Trump came in and it just panicked them and it froze them. But one thing that's going on is that there's a limited supply of top flight African American academics. So there's competition for them. We, you know, we've had B. Brian Foster was one of my colleagues in Southern Studies. He was an Ole Miss guy. He went to Chapel Hill, I think, for um, for uh, 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 his PhD, and then he came back. To, he was with us, and then he, he, you know, he ended up leaving. He got a better offer somewhere else. He may be at Chapel Hill. I don't actually remember exactly. Or Duke, one of those two. He's a he's at a great he's a great sort of research one institution. So what that might tend to do is mean that there's a that, you know when there's a competition and, and the best people. The best diverse candidates are being sucked away, sort of sucked up the ladder. It might lead to a certain amount of panic in institutions that have a slightly harder time holding on to talent like that. Um, I, I think that's underappreciated, an underappreciated element of where we are is this kind of competition. Um, I think the, the exclusionary yeah. point that you talked about is part of the function of these things. I mean, mm. you know, they would rather not have the majors if they're Trump supporters, right? Um, yeah. They would rather not not train them. Um, I'm they don't want to have to break them. You're right. Yeah. Well, the, the, yeah. they were fearful that they couldn't, right? Right. So as right. Somebody, totally. I did not vote yeah. for Trump in 2016. Um, but I did in 2020. Um, and, you know, in, in fact, like Trump's, I don't think really far, far enough to the right for me at this point. Um, and you have to understand that 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 makes me an embarrassment. I'm still right? talking to you, though. But I mean, yes, that's you this are, is right? why we but are like, modeling. We are modeling American discourse. Yes. And, and, and my point is this, though, is like I am an embarrassment to the discipline. Um, you know, and uh, universities, once people like me get into the professorate, that's not supposed to happen because what that shows is mm. that all people who think what I think aren't lunatics, right? Right. Uh, if they could become a professor and, and function, you know, at, at a high level and sort of peer reviewed publications, that's not supposed to happen. Right. Um, <laughs> and so I think that part of this discourse, right, the, the potential right wing grad student that you were talking about, mm -hmm. you know, the, the function is for that guy to look at the statement, you know, and say, oh, good for, point. Forget good it. Point. I'm out of here. Yeah. Um, good point. And the sad thing is, is that they would, you know, they'd rather have English as a discipline, you know, continue mm. the decline that's been going on for the last 50 years than make any reform. Um, because essentially now I, I, you might feel differently and if you do, you should say so. But I mean, English as a, dif as a discipline at this point is probably about 90% activism, that that's like what it is. 
Um, it probably is. And I think, you know, I haven't gone to the American Studies Association meeting in about five or six years. It was, well, five years. It was clear to me last time I was there that I absolutely was whatever the bull elephants that are just about to be kicked out into the back pasture. I just, that was sort of the look and the vibe. Um, uh, I was there to support a grad student and it was fun. You know, and I went and busked. It was in LA and I bust on Venice Beach. You know, I took advantage of the the boondoggle, I suppose, but but I haven't been to MLA in a few years, and I probably, I, I, you, but you're right though, and I, I do read PMLA. I glance at PMLA, um, but yes, 90 percent activism. I, yeah, and I feel sorry for younger academics who surely must be corralling certain errant thoughts, you know, away from the places that they can't go. Um, I, for all of this, I think it's extremely important. I mean, I remember the summer of 2020 and how somebody in my department in June of that year um, posted a links to you know, Dropbox or, or, or Box with, you know, um, Ken, Ken D'Angelo, right? Robin, Robin D'Angelo and, and Ibram X. Kendi and how one ought to read these things and, you know, utterly kind of unvetted. Nobody was saying, well, we ought to read and think about them and critique them. No, it was sort of read and, and just do that. And I, obey. I think... Read and obey. It, in that moment, and I wonder if I'm, I'm sure I'm speaking to others, to those who listen to your podcast, there was a kind of fear that went through me that I, that was very unfamiliar fear. I'm a guy who's used to speaking his mind. And I had been watching, I made a note to myself, I'd sort of been watching the Yale Halloween thing with Nicholas Christakis in 2015, Evergreen State, I just, where you sort of are watching aghast, you know. Um, I, even as places like Ole Miss with the Confederate monument, well, we had some neo-Confederates march on the university and do it, and it scared people. And so we eventually had a really good thing there, and we had we happened to have a Confederate graveyard on campus. So I was I thought it was great. Nobody tore down the damn statue; they just lifted it up from center position right by the Lyceum and and moved it to the you know move it to the graveyard and and then hit it. They had to build something so the football players, the black football players, wouldn't have to look at it and. In, in its relocated position, but it's been, it's fine. There are some good things that come when people dialogue. And I thought we actually handled that really well. But in terms of fear, that summer of 2020, um, I have a, a, a YouTube presence. I'm a sort of harmonica guy and I've been one for 13, 14 years. And I lost my voice. I didn't know what to say. I didn't want to get in my car and talk harp. I didn't quite know what I was about. And I heard people around me saying, listen to black voices, listen to black voices. And so what I did, so I was lucky enough somehow to stumble across Sam Harris's Can We Pull Back From The Brink? And I would urge anybody who didn't get to that, go back to June 13th of, 19, of 2020 and listen to how, to, to how he talks through the issues as he felt and saw them at that point. And you have to say, for better or worse, he was a, a brave man and a, and a real a thinker's thinker. And what he did was he mentioned, he says, I could have, I could have had, instead of taking the heat for this, I could have invited, and then he mentioned, Coleman Hughes, Glenn Lowry, Camille Foster, and a number of black thinkers that I've come to really admire. John McWhorter, um, who I knew about before, didn't really appreciate him fully. He visited Ole Miss once in the, I thought he was kind of dry back in 2010. Now he's absolutely essential. Um, and, and so, yeah, I began to listen to black voices, but they weren't the approved voices. They were a, another cohort, including some race abolitionists like Foster, um, who were trying to sort of get us past this hypertrophied identification with race. Um, 
you had um, Eric Smith on your podcast. I'm bringing him. I'm working with the Declaration of Independence Center for the, for a, for the study of American freedom, which has an awfully Republican, conservative, you know, scape foundation kind of. It's not, but it, you know, it's that. And 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 one thing I would encourage people to do on the contemporary college campus, people who might be like me, who thought of themselves as liberals, they've moved to the center. They even still have progressive dreams in some respect, but there's just something crazy going on. I would encourage them to think, to sort of look around on their campuses and say, well, is there some productive alliance that we could make here? It might be that, you know, you can reach out. And so Eric Smith and a, and a woman named the Reverend Starlet Thomas, who is very powerful, very uncompromising, very radical, who comes from the Koinonia um, kind of utopian, um, the sort of Koinonia was a was a was a southern uto racial utopian experiment, and she's contributed uh, an introduction or a preface to a book about Clarence. I'm forgetting the name of the guy, but she's going to come and sort of help remind us. And I, I'm calling it um, the dream of beloved community. Kind of remind us that maybe King got something right, and, and that's really my own. I mean. My, when people say, where are you coming from now? I've been interracially married for 18 years. I've got a 16-year-old son who, you know, plays the euphonium and knows and, and knows all, knows 40 out of uh, John Philip Sousa's 111 marches. I mean, and he can read. I can. I'm the illiterate blues guy, right? That's what I do. Um, but King did have a dream. There was something that was working. We were moving in a direction, including that racial healing moment of the late 90s and early 2000s. And of course, we know what happened, which is which was, and I've written about in a, from a skeptical centrist perspective about Trayvon Martin, about Michael Brown, that the Obama Obama DOJ actually got the Michael Brown thing right. That's which is to say, well, they, I think they got it right. And you should go and read the, that long report if you're if you're not sure what I mean by that. Um, Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Black Lives Matter. What what happened was. And, and it's been analyzed ad infinitum in various ways um, th th with the rise of social media and the sort of viralization of a certain kind of clip, the sort of a Rodney King kind of clip. The data doesn't really matter in that respect. What matters is the drama. And there's a book that, that's probably worth remembering that's out there, um, which is called, um, I think it's called Racial, uh, um, the, the subtitle is Racial Melodramas from from Uncle Tom to O.J. Simpson. Mm. Um, it's by a, it's a, it's a female academic, um, and she's talking about this age-old idea that Americans have. They, they need this scene of blackness being beaten down. It serves a, an important function. It may serve some constructive functions, but it also serves a sort of purgative, uh, it sort of purges emotion and conducts emotion. And there's a weird way in which what happened with George Floyd, it, she, she didn't, you know, she wasn't writing about that, but it absolutely fits within that racial melodrama script. And it was impossible to resist. I think historians will be trying to figure out what happened in the summer of 2020. But one thing that happened was that a certain strong incoming stream of activist thought, and I think it was in the educational schools, which is where your perspective is so useful. You know the, you know the, the e-school people. But I think that that just people said, this is our moment. And, and I don't know whether it's that Leninist concept, but it was clearly the moment to move and everybody moved. And that's where we are now is that, where are we now, Adam? I mean, that's where we are, but it was, it was, a, it was that one window and it was legitimate outrage, but it was also 
hyped outrage and there were all kinds of other currents going on and it i think it got us i mean um there was a lot happening in that moment covid was was part of it trump was a part of it yes um and you know i was i was reading your stuff and i'm going to read back a quote to you of of your own and ask uh if you Uh feel differently now because this kind of uh my mind jumped straight to 2020 when i read it you say This was in your piece about uh, Michael Brown, by the way. Mm-hmm. Only by taking to the streets and burning Ferguson did they ensure that the entire nation and Obama's Justice Department would take their abuse seriously. And it sounds to <clears throat> me like mm-hmm. th- this passage is um, essentially, you know, taking the pro-riot perspective, which many people embraced um, in the summer of 2020. And as uh, somebody who thinks that, um, you know, like, they they've treated january 6 like it was like the our democracy was teetering on the head of a pin but nobody blinked an eye to say you know it was mostly peaceful while the fires burned all summer long in 2020 i i, I well i agree i mean I, I we may see january 6 differently but we certainly agree that there was a terrible problem let me explain how i was deploying that so what i what i did is wrote an article about um basically true to two true tales told by uh, the Obama holder DOJ. So they, they, they came up with two reports in the aftermath of Ferguson. And my argument was based, if riots hadn't happened, we wouldn't have these reports. Now I know that's a So one report quirky... for our audience says, yeah. all right, Michael Brown didn't die the way people thought that he died. Right, and it was- The second se- one- The second says... one said the Ferguson Police Department. This is where I part with, um, with uh, uh, Shelby Steele and, and and Eli Steele, I love Eli Steele, and I agree Shelby with him. Most Steele, of Steele but I think thinkers. that he's great. He's terrific, and he, and the white guilt thing. I have not actually read that book, but there's no there's no question that that the, that concept is relevant, really relevant, and 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 it's a sort of undercurrent. So Sorry, I, I and I think you. Go ahead. well, I was going to say that. So the, the the one DOJ report on the death of Michael Brown said basically uh, that 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 if when you look at all the ballistics and you take all of the trustworthy um, uh, statement uh, eyewitness statements, the hands up don't shoot narrative was false, um, and and in fact it was six black informants who who ended up saving the day. Um, by saying basically, well, they'll kill, you know, they'll kill me if I tell if I tell tell you this in front of them. But here's what I saw, and and basically what people saw was they saw him reach through and punch Darren Wilson. They saw him try to wrench something, and then he ran away. And he turned around, he briefly put his hands up, then he put his hands down, and he charged. And Wilson took his gun and he fired twice in a controlled way. And Brown hesitated and kept going. And Wilson took it again, fired it. Finally, Wilson fired it a third time when Brown kept coming in and it was the kill shot. One of the older black men who was the, a witness for the, the DOJ said, basically, I would have shot that motherfucker sooner <laughs> than, than Wilson. So they all agree. They, they saw what happened and they began to talk in the aftermath. And the black community, people in the community said, basically called them names and said, you better get the F out. Right. That was so that's one report we have as a result of the rioting. The other, and I think it's crucial to understand, was, and I, I trust the report from the quotes that they got, the emails that they got, was that the Ferguson Police Department was uniquely, I hope it was uniquely racist. It was preying on the community. It was the, the way that they handled um, you know, expired licenses and, and traffic stops and stuff was to try to make money. It was, it was really bad. 
And so the community knew that they, they, there was a terrible relationship between them they were and, the, and their police department. They were spring-loaded to believe anything about Darren Wilson. Wilson was the black swan, so to speak, who's like, he's the cop who actually, it, it appears from the Obama holder DOJ, um, it, it appears that he actually used force in a measured and reasonable, a justified way, and they found nothing that could impeach him. So that my point was basically, it's a weird historical irony, and I don't countenance the riot, but the riot had the unintended effect of bringing heavy DOJ presence in and a sincere commitment to finding the truth. And I believe, given that it was Obama, it was Holder, they were going to find as much as they could. They did, but they, they were honest enough to tell the truth about Wilson, I think that's fallen completely into the memory hole. I don't think anybody in their in the sort of collective memory of Michael Brown, and this is where Eli, uh, Eli and, and Shelby Steele's documentary is very good. Um, they got most of that, yeah. Um, but that's what I meant. I, th- but I, I, you know, I call a riot a riot. Yeah. Uh, um, well, I think that the, yeah. the, the refusal to end the riots in 2020 was very much a part of. Uh, more or less, the, was, yeah. the state's attempt to make 2020 as absolutely miserable as they could in every way that they could, right? In order to ensure the desired outcome in 2020, um, the presidential election, you mean? Yes, right. That I think that you know, had it like if similar riots mm. were unfolding right now, those would be put down promptly in a matter of days, hmm. the way that they they could have been. Right. Uh, because we have the right guy in charge. But, so they tell me. Um, but uh, yeah, I wanted to ask you, actually, uh, we we don't even have time for all the questions I want to ask you. But at the beginning of this, you talked about your interest in racial violence. Um, and this is a yeah. question that interests me of, well, how do we define what constitutes racial violence? And I think about this, you know, so like, was there any aspect of take for example the michael brown conflict right like that was defined in any meaningful way by racial considerations or is it just that we have a black man or white cop and therefore it's necessarily racial violence and i feel like there's we've kind of at least personally it feels like we've kind of lost Mm. this distinction it's like if there's a black person a white person then it's racial right um i think this is like for example like george george floyd's case this is another one it's like well we have a black person and a white person ergo it's a racial event i'm not sure i buy it um but i wonder how you define it as somebody who who you know studies this has has is really well read on it Mm. what how do we know racial violence when we see it well what's interesting is so one thing one question to ask might be so if that's if if there is this paradigm right and it's part of the um, racial melodrama which would be the the white guy with the whether it's simon legree right with the whip or whether it's darren wilson with the gun there's sort of there's white and black and so there's a sort of outlaw hero on one side he's somebody what happens when the cop is black so you know i'm actually working on a long research piece right now in other words what what how does leftist ideology then take that into account? And I'm writing, uh, working on a long piece, it's taken a, a long time, on Ta-Nehisi Coates' book, Between the World and Me. And I'm interested in what he left out. I don't want to give away what I'm, everything I'm working on, but the, cop who, it, it, the book hinges on the, the, the killing of a, f- a friend of his, a guy he knew at Howard, who was sort of from the black bourgeoisie. And 
brilliant smile, six foot two, seemed to have the world just ahead of him, right? And a, his mother was a doctor, Philadelphia. Um, and, and he's killed by a cop. And the way that Coates tells the story is he's killed by a cop. Eventually, Coates tells you that the cop was black. But he, he does that, he does it in a grudging way, not after introducing, and to the point where many people did not know that, that when they sort of first heard about the inner's he underplays it, but, but to the extent that he has to make sense of it somehow, it doesn't matter to him because the guy's just an instrument for this longstanding, right? And I think that's one way that, that, that we make sense of these things. And the Freddie Gray, I think the cops who, who you know, basically slapped Freddie Gray around in the back of a van in Philadelphia and he died, they were, they were black. So, I mean, American policing has problems. The cop who killed Prince Jones was part of the Prince George's County Police Department, which is Prince George's County has the highest per capita number of rich black people in, in the country. And they have chosen for whatever reason to have a police force it's now, which, which was pretty violent. And to that extent, Coates was right to say there's a problem here. Um, he, didn't, he didn't really sort of dive deeply into why rich black people would be willing to have their police force be violent or why even though the police force had a number of black patrolmen on it that it tended to be really violent that those are those are more difficult problems what what Coates did was say it's the dream it's the dream of whiteness that America has been lost in all this time and the dreamers who want their you know um, their perfect Christmases and and, <laughs> and prep schools um I just I think there's a more complex story there and um but your question was, I think I've sort of gotten a little bit away from your question, racial violence. I think when I use the term racial violence I, I, in, in the context that I'm using it in, which is a Southern context, it depends on the fact that there were no black cops in the South for decades. Mm -hmm. Eventually they got some, which is why Rudolph Fisher has a famous story called City of Refuge from the early 20s or mid early to mid 20s. It's set in Harlem, he was a black writer and a, and, a, and a migrant, a greenhorn sort of from the South, black greenhorn kind of comes North and sees a black policeman. It's like the most amazing, miraculous thing he's ever seen because you didn't have them down South. Mm -hmm. So when I talk about racial violence in, in, in a blues context, I'm talking about the bad old yeah. Mississippi that everybody knows about sure. with, you know, with by, by, by hands unknown. And um, there's been some great scholarship there. Actually, uh, somebody that I've worked with, um, Margaret Burnham, who was, believe it or not, Angela Davis's young lawyer mm. back in the 60s. She, I, I once did some harmonica playing for her and her restorative justice project. She's coming to town on Wednesday and we'll be talking about her new book, which is about by the, you know, by, hand, by hands now known. Basically, she's gonna talk about law and how law and lynching worked. So America, I'm, I'm not gonna soft pedal that whole large category of stuff that we would all stipulate is racial violence, which is to say, white on black violence. Um, there is, of course, what I call retributive violence in my book, uh, my 2002 book, um, which is which is black on white violence, mm -hmm. not for criminal purposes, but for sort of the purpose of re re what's the word? Um, restorative justice in a broad score or, or, settling. or score settling, contesting disciplinary violence. And that's the black outlaw. That's um, you know, sweet, sweetback's badass song. That's the. I think America loves an outlaw. 
And oh. I think that a, that a certain kind of black outlaw is is very seductive, um, and including OJ, which who's a curious outlaw, rich as he was, and celebrated as he was as a mainstream icon. But yeah. So while we're talking about people's books, I think my last question, or the last one that we have time for, yeah. relates to your most recent one, Who's Blues, and um, you you frame that book as kind of an exploration of the question of ownership um and and sort of a dialogue between um i think the people who say the black blues movement where they say blues is a black form black blues is black music form. yeah that that, right. that mean and right. that therefore yeah. they have black people have some ownership of this versus kind of the blues universalists who are like blues is for everybody no um, black no white just the blues that's sort of meme yeah yes yeah. and and this strikes me um a big part of campus conversations is this question of appropriation Mm -hmm. um, appropriation has bothered me very much because it hinges on a very problematic notion of cultural property. Who owns what? Um, and it seems to me, and feel free mm -hmm. to push back on me here sure. if you sure. think that I'm wrong about this, but it seems to me that the content of sort of white culture, right, is for everyone, right? So in other words, white, white communities can't claim white cultural content as such. And yet these other sort of minority communities can own cultural property. They could say, well, you know, this is ours. We're going to police this. Um, and, and so I think that at least theoretically, this, this, um, this idea of cultural property, um, which is, I think, meant to acknowledge the agency mm. of certain minorities, actually mm -hmm. inflames more racial grievance because you know, on the minority side, they see appropriations of their cultural property and say, how dare you, right? And then on the other side, the majority says, well, we don't even get to own cultural property. If we de define it as our own, that becomes a racist gesture or an exclusionary gesture. Um, and so your, your engagement uh, with this mm -hmm. question of cultural property in terms of the blues makes me think that you might have some thoughts about the, the idea of ownership in terms of mm. cultural content. I think about that. So, so um, what, you know, interestingly enough, the first thing that came to mind was uh, there's a, a, a celebrated chef, a, a sort of, I want to say a Mexican chef, but he's a, an Amer a white American guy, Rick Bayless. Yes. From La Frontera, right? Yep. Um, a friend of my mom's, my mom is an old foodie. She's everybody's friends with her. And, mm. and so she loves Rick Bayless and, and, his, and his elaborations of Mexican food and, and that restaurant. The food is unbelievably delicious. Um, he's obviously a kind of celebrity chef. Um, and, you know, while Paula Dean can be a celebrity Southern chef um, retailing Southern food, when Rick Bayless, you, you, I'm trying to steel man the, the, the claim. I can imagine that there's a certain kind of ambitious, um, sort of semi-elite, up-and-coming, would-be um, main guy for Mexican food, for, of Mexican origin, or of Mexican-American origin, who might say, why is some white guy the, 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 the guy at the top of the heap? So there's a certain amount of status um, jostling that's going on here. And I can, you know, to steal man it, I can... The question really, of course, well, suppose Rick Bayless is like incredibly authentic and he's gone and he spent time with, with, the, with the mamacitas down in Mexico and he's, he's gone to the schools and he's, and he's really been mentored well and learned well and his food's really good and it's authentic by standard. 
Um, or, or one question might be, well, does it have to be authentic? Maybe it's just really good. And maybe maybe that fusion element is a part of how American culture works. Maybe it's but authenticity I, is part of the problem. Maybe it's right? part of the problem. Is you know, that I, he is it, the fact that Rick Bayless can do it suggests right. that that uh you know oh there... good point good point <laughs> i like i like the way your mind works adam that yes but, no but i do like it. your example of him too because if you've ever yeah. i'm sure you've watched his television program he also I does oh no no okay this is this is old this is maybe 20 years old now but it was it very much exoticized it so like he'd always be okay. on site at this market in jalisco to get just the right peppers and this kind of thing okay which is a way to signify authenticity but it's also kind of to use the language of the campus left exoticizes the it's exoticizing yeah. right he's on a safari to get right. the real stuff right so i think reasonable people can say Okay, I get that there's something going on there, and and I get why. But, but you know, but it's also about the it's about the money and the status. That's some of it, and 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 I think one of the worries would be by the intellectuals who consider themselves the organic intellectuals of the cohort, the sort of celebrity Mexicans, Mexican chefs who are also intellectuals. That's where it comes. That's where the problem is. It's not it's not the guy with the food cart, <laughs> right? right? He doesn't give a damn. He could probably sell stuff on the street in front of the restaurant to, you know, he's happy people are liking the food, right? People, but it's on that higher level. It's, it's the elite that has a problem with this. When it comes to blues, let me, let, me, let me think about this. So one of the things I try to do is I try to complexify things. And I do it in a number of different ways in my books. And if I try to go on, we don't have the time for me to go on. Um, one of the things I do is say, well, if you think Number one, I talk about the transformation of the blues audience between 1960 and 1970. So that in 1960, you're just beginning to get white folks who are interested in country blues and, and those guys, right? The, the, the Mississippi John Hurts and, and people are going off and trying to find old blues guys. Sun and they're Sunhouse, so, sun they find these guys. Dick Waterman goes down to Mississippi and comes back with old blues guys. And you have young white blues players who are playing acoustic blues, Yorma Cockadin and things like that. Now, um, and then you have the electric blues invasion. At the same time, young, young black folks are saying blues is like old people's music. I like soul. And so there's a sort of flip-flop where the blues audience, even as there's a sort of white blues explosion with the Butterfield Blues Band and, and, and Can't Heat and all of that stuff, the black blues audience is disappearing. White, young white cohort, young, black cohort goes away. And I think one thing that happens, um, and then th that changes blues culture forever, right? To this day, we're still living the after effects of that transformation. Now there's a couple, but there's some complexity. So if you say, well, I want to reverse all this, like blues is black music. What do you have to fight against? If you say blues is black music, you have to first of all say that even the very best non-black blues singers, even the I mean, whoever you want to call the best, Mitch Cashmark can sing his ass off. I mean, there's there's any number of Bonnie Raitt. You have to say they're not. It's not really blues. Blues is black music. It's not really, um, and they need to give back what they've taken. But one thing you need to do is say, well, how do what what happens if we go back to the year 1920, for example, and you realize that whites have been singing, recording, playing the music for a long time. And in fact, there were white blues songwriters. And you, so you have Lieber and Stoller doing Yakety Act, Don't Talk Back in the Rhythm and Blues period. Um, you know, at Doc Pomus writing Lonely Avenue for Ray Charles. So one thing, 
you have to do is say, okay, so we're going to get rid of all those cooperative things where, you know, we have black artists and white songwriters. What about like black songwriters in 1925 making money saying, learn how to sing the blues. I, I have that in my book. You know, there were some black songwriters who were like trying to teach white people how to sing the blues. Wait a minute, you're making money teaching me how to sing the blues. Now you're going to come around decades later and say blues is black music. Okay. Um, but there's a whole other element of complexity that I think is fascinating, which is to say, there's actually two, there, well, there's two things I want to heighten. One of them is that blues is no longer just about black and white in America. So one of the ways to deconstruct the blues is black music is to say, well, it's also interestingly enough, it's a global music. It's gone way beyond America and they're playing it in South America and they're playing it in Europe. They're playing it in Japan. Turns out that the, and I did a whole deeply researched essay on the global spread of blues music. And it turns out that the Rolling Stones are really important. <laughs> the sort of British blues invasion ends up being one of the main ways that blues rock in the rock form is kind of distributed around the world on like English British air bases in, the, in, in Indonesia and stuff like that. Another thing is um, that B.B. King becomes a global ambassador. He goes to Japan early. Their blues scene hits critical mass early. So there's a lot of blues as a global music. Which is to say, one, if, if you're going to say blues is black music, I might say, well, of course it is. But if we're going to be true blues people here, there's a little bit of double consciousness going on. It's blues is black music, blues is global music. Blues is, so it's, it's black music, it's everybody's music. It's not just one thing. Why, if we really know what blues is about, why would we ever say it's just one thing? It's always two or more things in tension. Famous blues lyric that, that uh, not a famous, but Rick Estrin, a sort of, a, a well-known older white blues player who makes kind of comedy of the blues in some ways. I once told him off, we're friends now, but I told him off in a letter to Living Blues. I was young Garrett Felber saying, Mau Mau the Flat Catcher, you know, the, the, who make the, the, the minstrel show out of the blues. He and I are friends now. I've chilled. I've chilled. <laughs> but he has a blues lyric that goes, baby, I hate to see you go, but I love to watch you walk away. Um, <laughs> heart, body, Heart, love, and sex all together, it's more than one thing. And so, but there's something else that's important, I, I have, which is to say there's two contemporary blues scenes because they're the remnants of the Chitlin circuit, the, the black blues scene. That scene never actually died. It's still alive and well in the Mid-South, in Memphis, in Mississippi, in Chicago to some extent. Um, it's an all black scene. This is like when Henry Louis Gates did a famous article in The New Yorker, when, 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 um, uh, 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 oh gosh, blues playwright, August Wilson, only the greatest blues playwright, and uh, one of the greatest black playwrights ever, probably the greatest, in the mid-90s was saying basically black theaters, for, you know, we need theater for black people. And I, there, it was like the, an equity argument back then. Henry Louis Gates, to his credit, came along and said, well, there actually is an all black theater scene. Um, but it's the plays are sort of, they're Tyler Perry, you know, do you, they're not high art like Wilson, but they're, but they're people's art. And we need to know about this. Well, there's a black blues scene. There's a contemporary black blues scene called soul blues. Uh, um, uh, uh, see, blues and just blues sometimes, soul blues, Southern soul blues, Southern soul. Um, it is an all black scene. The performers are 99.9% .9 black. The audiences are, except for an occasional whitey like me, they're all black. The people who, you know, make the money, all, all black, except for a few record labels. The Malico was a couple of white Ole Miss guys, actually. Um, and that scene doesn't have any problem. 
It doesn't have a race problem. It just is its scene and it's for the community and it's for black people who like the particular mix. Meanwhile, we have some people, black and white, but we have some others who say, well, that's not really blues. That's more like soul. And so that, there's the mainstream scene, the mainstream, the festivals, the blues societies, the familiar, the blues magazines feed to this scene. That is an integrated scene. It has since the beginning. It's been, and what we're having now is we're having, again, a kind of market share struggle. <laughs> and so in a sense, what I'm doing in my book is, is saying, you know, Billy Branch, Sugar Blue, wonderful guys I've hired for, for an event. I had a, a little bit of a problem with the way that they and others framed things in 2012, shortly after the Trayvon Martin thing. They framed the contemporary blues scene as a sort of zero sum game and how they had a lot of there were some true things that they said, but also there were some tendentious arguments that they made. And the key element here is that they have no reputation on the all black scene. Their reputation is on the mainstream scene. The, it's democracy. We're struggling. And that scene is mostly white audiences, not entirely, but mostly and global audiences, mostly non-African American, largely non-African American audiences. The white folks who kind of kept that scene alive and put sweat equity into that scene in the form of blues societies. I mean, crazy aficionado types. We all know them, the hardcore blues people. I, I, I love them. They're not the only fans that I've played for, but I played for a lot of them. And I think I, I, I took things a long way from where you started. Um, but hopefully what I, my, my method for dealing with these things is to, is to try to entertain the complexities, to try to say more than one thing's going on at the same time. And in this case, to say, you know, that scene's always available um, to these players, but they don't have names on that scene. They, they want white audiences to, and white promoters to love them <laughs> and to pick them. And I can't blame any performer for wanting to be loved and wanting the gigs. And here's the, you know, the paradox is that because they raised that stink, they're probably getting a little, a few more gigs. Well. So this is American culture. It's what we mean by hurly burly. People raise a stink, but it doesn't mean that we then, I then have to get down and genuflect when you raise that stink. I have to think seriously. Um, I revised that book. I'll tell you, and it was in galleys in the summer of 2020. And I was like, Oh shit. Like it, there was some few things in it that were a little more abrasive and I dialed a few things back. So we're all, yeah, I'm not embarrassed by that. It was a really tough time. And I thought, I don't want them coming after me with a gun or coming after me with, you know, I don't want Billy calling me on, not a gun, but I don't want Billy calling me on the phone and just yelling at me again. Right. I want to, that mostly I didn't. Want me Maybe one day for the second edition, <laughs> you'll have to release the director's cut. Um, I, I got rid of it. I don't know what it was. <laughs> well, it was I think we're out of time, Adam. Yeah. Uh, it's been yeah. a great conversation, very wide ranging. Um, and uh, I hope people check out your book. Um, thanks again for coming. It was my pleasure. Really, really fun. Thank you. All right.